we're going to continue in our Bible study series, and I'm so excited today uh, that we get to hang out with a really, 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 really short letter. Before I hop into this letter, I want to begin our time with uh, a couple of uh, quotes that I think will center our hearts and our minds to better enter into the conversation that this letter is going to invite us into. Uh, you may know these words, you may have heard them before, but they were impactful words to me the first time I ever heard them. Here they are. It says, there is no future without forgiveness. There is no future without forgiveness. These are probably some of the most famous words of uh, the late Desmond Tutu. He was an Anglican archbishop in South Africa, fundamental in the reconciliation work and the anti-apartheid work that was going on in that country. If you know anything about it, you know that there was a racial divide similar to what we've experienced here, and, and his message was a hard but necessary message. His message was a message that you didn't expect because his message were to those who had a reason to have an offense. His message were to those who had a reasonable gripe. They had been wronged. They had been hurt. They, they had a, a righteous anger. And, and his words to them were, there is no future without your forgiveness. And I love those words because they challenge our presuppositions. They challenge where we sometimes want to find comfort and where we sometimes want to make our home. He had a series of powerful words. Another one of his quotes that I don't think is so famous, but I think is just as meaningful, is this. He says, there is no peace that is impossible when people are determined to achieve it. No peace is impossible when people are determined to achieve it. With that said, this morning we're going to be looking at this letter to Philemon. I say Philemon, you might say Philemon. You might say Philemon. It doesn't matter. I'm going to say Philemon. All right? I'm country. We say Philemon, we say pecan, and we say salmon. All right? As you know, what you need to know is I ordered salmon yesterday at Old Charlie's, and she knew exactly what to bring me. So there you go. But, but here's our goal. Our goal is to, in these Bible study series, is to take God's word. And what we want to do is, is we want to look at it from every angle. A lot of times we go to God's word and we're just pulling out these bite-sized applications and going about our day. And that's great. Sometimes we need just those reminders. But there's something special about when you can just take some of God's word and you can look at it from every angle. You can hold it up against the light to see its validity, to see its story, to see all that it brings to your life. And, and that's what we want to do. And we're doing that not just to be academic, but we're doing that so that we might better sit under it. Because that's the call of the believer. We ought to sit under the authority of God's word. So that's what we hope to do today when we look at uh, Philemon. Uh, what you need to know about Philemon, here's some quick facts. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, we think somewhere between the spring of 60 AD to 62 AD. This was written while he was in prison in Ephesus. Interesting enough, he wrote uh, a few other letters that we love in the same time. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, and he wrote Colossians. So a lot of times these letters are grouped together and they're called the prison epistles. That's confusing because he wrote a lot of things from prison, 
all right? But, but these were unique because they were written together and sent out together. And so uh, he wrote these, these letters from his place in prison in Ephesus. The letter is in reference to a person by the name of Philemon, not a group of people. That could be confusing if you're only aware of the letters that he wrote to a group of people. Just like uh, Titus in 1 Timothy, the book of Philemon was written to a person, but it really had a very unique and communal impact. Uh, the letter to Philemon is the shortest letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's only 335 words. I mean, it is tiny. You've skipped over it 100 times trying to get to 1 Timothy, uh, Hebrews, 1 Peter, Revelation. Some of y'all put an S on there because it's scandalous. Revelations. When you're skipping back there. It's real short. Like it, It's so short that it's only a half a page in this little Bible. Real tiny. Beyond that, this is the only letter, just a fun fact, the only letter that the Apostle Paul doesn't explicitly preach uh, Christ's death and resurrection. But as you read it, you'll see like his unique way of bringing Christ's death and resurrection to the forefront of his message. And so it's a beautiful artistic work, in my opinion. So uh, last week, Tyler showed us a map. Let's throw this map up there. I stole his map, but I made some edits. So my edits are those two arrows. You see that? That's great. It took me five minutes. I couldn't figure out the program, but I got it, all right? I thought I was going to have to get on Canva to make it work, but I figured it out. But what you see the arrow pointing to is the city in which Philemon lived. That is Colossae. And as you know uh, from last week, uh, we, had, we went through this journey in the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. And so we know at the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas split up. They have a disagreement. They go two separate ways. And we understand that the uh, Apostle Paul went his route on the way to Macedonia. And what we learn is, is that in Acts 16, 6, he goes to this, through this area called uh, Phrygia. And then we learn that uh, on his way back, on his way to Ephesus, coming from Athens and Corinth, they pass back through this area in Acts 18.23. Lastly, we see that uh, once they landed in Ephesus, Paul had a very fruitful ministry. He was there for quite a while, and Acts 19.10 says that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and and Greeks. And so I say all that to say that most scholars believe that it was somewhere uh, in Paul and his crews passing through that region or in his teaching in Ephesus that Philemon came to faith. Uh, the, the way that you can understand that is that uh, Paul had a teaching hub in, in uh, Ephesus and uh, people wanted to hear this message. So people would come and go. Ephesus, as you know, was a very important town. And so either Philemon came to town to do business, was captivated by the message, came to faith and went back home, or through Paul's just evangelistic nature as he was just passing through, dropped some dimes, uh, Philemon came to faith, and now he knows Jesus. The area, if you just want to kind of have a reference point uh, that all this is located, is modern-day Turkey. Uh, so if you want to think about where Paul is and where Philemon is and where this whole thing has happened, think about modern-day Turkey. Um, what's cool is that we have a letter to the city that Philemon lived. 
Again, Philemon lived in the city of Colossae, and if you can connect the dots, we have a letter called Colossians. And so because of that, I think it's helpful for us to make a pit stop in Colossians to see what was happening in Colossae and to better understand the context and some framework for what Philemon was tasked with from the Apostle Paul. A lot of scholars believe that, in fact, Colossians and Philemon were meant to be together. They say that like Philemon was actually kind of like a PS note to the letter of Colossians. So they were actually meant to be read together. So you would hear the letter of Colossians and then, hey, PS, Philemon, here's a message for you. And so it's good to go to Colossians to get some of the things that they were facing and some of the teaching that he gave to the general church because it will be applicable to the teaching he's given Philemon in his letter. And so here's what you need to know about uh, Colossae. It was a uh, trade route city. Uh, they had a history of being a, a super powerful trading center. Um, they had this specific type of wool that people would come to get. It was a scarlet color kind of wool that they sold that rose them up. But by the time the Apostle Paul and the Colossian church was getting off the ground, they weren't so much a powerhouse, but, but the remnants of that still existed uh, in the city. Uh, the church in Colossae, uh, was likely started by another one of Paul's converts by the name of Epaphras. Um, like many of the other cities uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to, the Christians here were struggling uh, with, some, with the heretical practice called syncretism. That might be a new word for you, but syncretism basically means taking preferred aspects of different religions and worldviews and blending them together. If, you, if you've ever read the Old Testament, this is what made God so mad with his people over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, he would give them something to do. They would come back to, to obedient faith, and then they would go over there and they would hang out with the Moabites a little bit. Then all of a sudden, they're doing the things the Moabites did and trying to worship Yahweh. Then we see this even today. This is something for you to tuck away in your back pocket as a good apologist for the Christian faith, as a, as a good evangelist. You need to know that it is very popular, actually, in our culture for people to walk in syncretism. They just don't call it that. But you might run up on somebody who says they love Jesus, but they also rub rocks. They may burn sage in their house. They, they, you may run into somebody who says, I, I, I love Jesus, but they pray to the universe. Uh, you, you run into people who, who, who say, I love Jesus, but they actually believe their horoscopes. Right, right. That's, a, like, that's real. That is called syncretism. And, and the, what the Bible teaches us is that that is actually sinful. That is actually heretical. And so if that is a part of your faith journey, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, just turn. But if you run into somebody, you know that they're preaching you a false gospel if they bring in anything other than Jesus and him crucified. So that's just a good thing to tuck away. So when you go on the waterfront and they come up to you and they're trying to get you to join their cult, you already know what you need to say. All right. but, but specifically for this church, what they struggled with was this Jewish Gnosticism. Uh, there was this heresy where they blended their Eastern mythology and Judaism. So what, what we surmise happened is, you know, what Tyler emphasized a couple weeks ago, these are all baby Christians, and they, they don't have a finished canon like we do, so they're waiting for letters, and they're dependent on the teaching of the apostles. And all of a sudden, these Judaizers come to town, uh, the more, uh, I guess, in their mind, mature believers, and they roll in and they say, hey, like, 
I'm glad that y'all love Jesus. I'm glad you accept him as Messiah. We do too. But you're not doing enough. We've heard this story before. So y'all need to start keeping the law. Y'all, all y'all need to get circumcised. I mean, y'all need to start eating right. Like y'all need, y'all need to get right. And, and what the context is missing from these Judaizers is that these people in Colossae come, grew up in a system where their, uh, their, their uh, national deity, uh, the way that you worship her was to make blood sacrifices. Uh, I think her name was Sibylle. And this blood sacrifice, you stood under it, and as the blood fell on you, it made you clean. Now, you can see how that can be confusing. This is what they've known their whole life. They accepted a new message that says, no, you're clean through somebody else's sacrifice. Somebody shows up who's actually supposed to be more mature. They know the Torah by heart. And they say, you're not doing enough. Now they're in confusion. And so the Apostle Paul writes to correct his heresy. But he also writes to speak to other things. And we get one of the most robust uh, chapters on Christian ethics in Colossians 3. If you've ever read Colossians 3, it's like fighting Mike Tyson. Just punch left, punch right, punch left, punch right. Thank you, Jesus, I'm saved, but punch left, punch right. And so we want to make a pit stop there to just grab some of these highlights that I think are important because they speak to the, just the, uh, the level in which the Apostle Paul went to speak to all of their life. And so when you open that chapter, the first verse is this, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your eyes on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Number one, he said, hey, set your eyes on the things of above, set your things on the finished work of Christ, set your eyes up there where things are all good and already set up for you, set your eyes on the fact that Jesus is enough, set your eyes on the fact that he is indeed God, set your eyes on the fact that he has said it is done, it is finished, set your eyes there, center your life on the grace of God that flows from Christ's position. Then we skip down to verse five, he says, so put to death uh, sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desire. So then he says, hey, now that you got your eyes set above, I need you to start dealing with the stuff that's inside of you that's going to try to take you out. There's some things that you're just going to struggle with that you just have to submit to Christ. Set your eyes upstairs and know that he's bigger than what you're facing and submit those things to Christ. Verse 8 says, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, uh, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. He's saying, now I need you to start taking care of the things that's going to affect how you do life with other people. You don't get to walk around here being mad at folks. You don't get to walk around here in a rage. You don't get to walk around here being a gossip. You can't go over here and have lunch with this person talk about everything and go over here and have lunch with this person and talk about everything that they said about themselves to this person. You got to cut that out. He's saying, hey, hey, be authentic. Uh, be Christ to each other, but also, but, but imitate the holiness in which you have received. Imitate the righteousness that you have freely received. Then verse 10 says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And so, boom, he says, I named all these sins. 
And it's easy to go down there and pick the ones that you do, pick the ones that you don't do. But can I just go ahead and tell you, none of that matters because you all need Jesus. If you got one sin, you need the same sacrifice as somebody who has a thousand. We're all level at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus equally. But that is also what binds us together. That is the most beautiful thing about the Christian family is that it transcends anything that we bring into the family. So he says, everything that the world has said is most true about you is now less true about you because of Christ Jesus. So live there. And that's in Paul's words established for the Colossians, this idea of being a new humanity in Christ and and every believer's duty to live out that newness towards one another. He was establishing a theology that regardless of your story and your social status, that we are all one and equal and needy in Christ. I think it's no coincidence that when Jesus preached his, his Beatitudes, the very first thing he said is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they need me above anything else. And Paul here brings us back to those very important words of Jesus and says, blessed are you in the family of God because you need Jesus. So he establishes this theology of need, but also this awareness of what you've received. And this is going to be so important when we understand what he's going to ask Philemon to step towards. After all that, in chapter 4 of Colossians, we find a very important name. It's the other name in the letter that we're going to read, Onesimus. Picking up in verse 7, it says this, uh, Tychicus will give you a full report about how I'm getting along. Tychicus is the letter carrier. He is a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. So he's saying, listen, a lot of people have been using my condition as a way to try to disqualify me, to call you not to listen to me. They see me in chains. They see me in bondage. And they say, hey, that's proof that he's not a real apostle because God would never allow that to happen to his people. And Paul is saying, I'm sending somebody to you to to stand on ground to say, I'm doing fine. I'm actually in good spirits. I'm actually writing this to you in joy. And he's going to give an account to it. But he says, I'm also sending Onesimus a faithful and beloved brother, and one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that is happening here. So according to Paul's word in Colossians, Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother and someone who has been entrusted with giving an eyewitness report on what is happening with the Apostle Paul. He is somebody that has been entrusted with some very important information. So to every hearer of this letter, Onesimus would be someone who is to be welcomed, someone who is to be respected, someone who is to be loved. Like this dude knows the Apostle Paul personally. Because what we know is uh, the Apostle Paul had quite never made it to Colossae yet. So all the believers only knew of the legend of the Apostle Paul. They had only received his wisdom and they had only heard the people who helped them come to faith talk about how the Apostle Paul helped them come to faith. And so all of a sudden, they're like, oh, somebody's coming to town who who know him, and he's one of our people? What? That'd be like me going to All-Star Weekend with LeBron. I'm like, I'm getting in everywhere. I'm with LeBron. Oh, come on in, sir. I'm with LeBron. Come on in. 
He, he can go to any church in Colossae. I, I know Paul. Really? Come on in. So all of a sudden, we got two people coming to town. They're, they're carrying some letters with a lot of important information. When everybody hears this letter of Colossians, they're going to start feeling all warm and fuzzy that the honored Tychicus and Onesimus is standing in their midst. But we also have a second letter to Philemon that addresses the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. So here's what you need to know. Philemon was a member of the Colossian church, but more than that, we know him to be a leader in that church. He, he was a wealthier leader that hosted a church in his home. In order to host a church in his home, he had to meet certain qualifications. He had to be well-liked, well-loved, but nobody ain't going to want to come to your house. In fact, we can surmise that from the Apostle Paul's writing that one of his spiritual gifts was actually hospitality. Like he was one of the most hospitable people in the Colossian church. That was his offering to God. So he opened up his home. I mean, think about how, how hospitable you got to be to let folk come to your house every Sunday. Some of y'all who host groups in your home, God bless y'all. Y'all welcome people to your house every Sunday, but that is probably your spiritual gift, and you should know that that, that is worthy, and that is honorable, and that is good. You don't have to be able to, to, to stand up here and preach. You've been a good host is one of the most transformational things you can do in this world and for the body of Christ. And we see that in this letter. And so we know that Philemon, I mean, we know that Philemon is this important person. He's a church leader. He's well-respected. But who is Onesimus? Well, his backstory is a little different. Onesimus is actually a runaway slave from Philemon's household who apparently robbed or cheated Philemon in some way before he ran off. And at this point, Onesimus has been a fugitive and according to Roman law, worthy of death by crucifixion. So all of a sudden now, you can see our issue. You got this guy who has had a loss and you have another guy coming back into town that will be introduced as someone to be loved and respected, but there's a beef with one of the church leaders. And so when the Apostle Paul writes, he's writing to address a church unity issue. Now, it's important before we zoom past that to just grab some context, because what can be dangerous is that we can get context like that and we can interpose our own lived experience or our own story into God's word. And, and what we call that is eisegesis. That is error. You don't take your lived experience and interpose it into God's word. You take God's word and interpose it into your lived experience. And so a lot of times what happens is we read something like this and we say, uh, slave and master. How can, the, how can the slave master be mad at anybody? How, how is Onesimus in the wrong for running away? Because we have our own unique history. We have our own unique story. And we don't want to take lightly the fact that our country has its history and that we still feel uh, the, the weight of that daily as we all try to figure out ways that we can live and do life together. But our call as faithful followers of Jesus is to not allow our story and our history to change what God is trying to teach us in his word. And so what you need to know is there, when you read the Bible, there are prescriptive things and there are descriptive things. You got to know the difference. Uh, prescriptive things 
are things that are commands from God. They are expectations from God. They are God's express will in the passage. Don't do this. Do that. Stop doing this. Go here. Make this happen. These are clear commands. They are prescriptive. They are prescriptions to our sinful nature. So we apply them to our lives. But then there are things that are descriptive. They're just telling us the facts. They're just speaking the truth. And, and what we know about our human nature is we don't really like descriptive facts. We like to skip over the descriptive. But descriptive is important because it gives us a better picture. And so there's some things that are just telling us, here's the city. Here's the place. Here's the time. Here's the nature of the relationship, as our passage is telling us. Now, what uh, people who want to disqualify the Christian faith do is they ignore those interpretive lenses and what they do is they'll go grab a passage like this and say, see, the Bible condones slavery, so you should never be a Christian. That person is mishandling God's word. That person is a liar. The Bible says that person is an antichrist. They are building a foundation wrongly and accusing God himself of condoning a heinous thing that we know breaks his heart. But we have to be wise and we have to understand that what we're looking at when we go to scriptures like this is a very specific context. What you have here is, is a place um, that slavery was just a part of their society. Throw the facts up there. So we have some quick facts about slavery that just helps us understand. About 10 to 20% of the population in, in Rome uh, were slaves. Uh, people became slaves and bond servants in many different reasons. There, there were people who became slaves through the conquest. We know that the Roman Empire grew so big because they just conquered other countries and other lands over and over and over again. So here's what happened. If they came and they conquered where you live and you didn't die, they probably took you into slavery. If your parents died in the middle of battle and you were a child, they took you into slavery. Um, even if uh, maybe you were uh, born to a slave, guess what you were born into? Slavery. Sometimes we have people who just didn't have money and they couldn't afford kids. You know what they did? They just abandoned their kids into slavery. There were even households where if the, if the father of the household didn't want to accept the child laid at his feet, if he didn't reach down to scoop up and pick up that child and embrace that child, that child had no rights to the family, and that child was now property, even if it was the blood child from his wife. We also know that there are people who uh, had so much debt that the most advantageous thing for them to do was to sell themselves in the servanthood to pay off the debt. We also know that some people who were born into the lower caste system saw this as a way up. They say, hey, I'm stuck in this bottom uh, caste system. If I can become a slave in one of the richest people's houses, I can work until I'm 30 and then once I get 30 and I've saved enough money, I can actually buy my freedom. And now I'm actually in a higher class in society. So this thing was much more circumstantial based than, than racially or ethnic based. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't as hard and as brutal as we know slavery to be. 
Slaves could serve in a various number of roles. They could be doctors, nurses, but also prostitutes and gladiators. We know later in, in the Roman Empire, they began to serve in government because it grew so much that they didn't have enough people to fill offices. So they just started serving in government. And one of the most significant uh, kind of slave revolts we know about is one led by the name of Spartacus. We've kind of immortalized Spartacus. That's a name that we know, but it didn't end beautifully. Historians believe that 6,000 of those who revolted were crucified publicly and left so that others could see, don't you try this yourselves. So we don't want to minimize the reality of what was happening in this slavery, but we do want to emphasize that this story is not the story of America. We can't read scripture with our Western eyes. We have to read it as it says. But what you need to know is this. This is a small blimp of a community. Baby Christians trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus without even having a complete word of God in this expansive society that has a way of life. It is a honor-shame community that those who you relate to, the way that you walk, the way that you do things determine whether or not you are successful in the public sphere. By the way, we know that our digital age is trying to bring back an honor-shame society. Just go online today and post something that people disagree with. You've all seen it. People post something, they say something out of a good uh, place or out of an honest opinion. People come after them, then they post that apology. I'm sorry. Please don't take my platform. My, my advice to all of us, let's just all get canceled together. All right, cancel me, please. But, but really what, what was happening here is that this slave-master relationship was just one of the many relationships that the Christian uh, doctrine was transforming. It was speaking into the, the man and woman relationship. It was speaking into the Jew and Gentile relationship. It's speaking into the rich and poor relationship. I mean, it, it's speaking into all these cultural norms that were just rooted And it's just teaching us just how transcendent the power of the gospel is. So we know, before we even dive into this letter, that the church was a messy place and is a messy place. Broken people needing Jesus. So my call in saying all that is, before the enemies try to swoop in and, 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 and snatch you out of here, and intoxicate you with judgment on the early church, I'm just asking you to walk in grace. They had an incomplete theology that they were building. But what we do know is that this letter to Philemon was foundational in some of the theology that we have today. People like uh, Wilberforce and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and many of the others who, who moved social norms forward point to the book of Philemon and the way that the Apostle Paul wrote as a foundational piece to their understanding of why the way that we do human life here is wrong. So with all that information in mind, we have to ask a question though. Um, How does one go from being a runaway slave to a beloved brother? What happened? Well, theologians kind of have settled into two primary areas. 
One teaching is that um, <clears throat> uh, and Onesimus ran away, and somehow on his running away, he was captured, and he ended up in prison alongside the Apostle Paul. And we know how the Apostle Paul rolled. If you chain to him, if you near him, you're going to hear about Jesus. It's like going to your grandma's house. You're going to hear about Jesus. Even if she know you saved, she's going to make sure you save. Right? So we know that the Apostle Paul, he's preaching to everybody he can. And so one belief is that that is what happened. Another belief is that um, Onesimus did what he did. He ran off. And as he was running off, this weight of the reality of the decision he made fell on him heavy. He began to realize that the decision he made might have been a little rash. And what was facing him was a death that he did not want to face. And somehow, some way, this name Paul came to his mind. And he remembered that this Paul was in Ephesus and that Philemon loved Paul. So he said, if I could just get to Paul, and if I could just convince him to be my advocate, to stand in my place, to take on my sin as his, to appeal to the one who has authority to end my life on my behalf, I'm going to go. That sounds real familiar. If you know Jesus, you've done that already. And what we learn is that when he gets to Paul, Paul says something like, I hear you, but can I tell you something else? And he preaches the gospel to him. And Onesimus comes to faith and then stays there and is, and is discipled by the apostle Paul. And then along the journey, as the Apostle Paul is sending these letters out with Tychicus, decides to tell Onesimus to take the journey with them and go home and make things right with Philemon. And so what we have here are these two truths that are wrestling with each other for Philemon. There is the truth of the past and there is the truth of the present. There is the truth of Philemon's Romans right, but also his gospel obligation. And the Apostle Paul is speaking directly into that tension, and he's giving him a solution. So with that said, the letter to Philemon, this is your interpretive lens and your interpretive key, excuse me. The letter to Philemon is a public letter written with a personal message of advocacy, forgiveness, and reconciliation to troubleshoot a potential church unity issue, but also to advance the gospel. Now, when you read this letter, it's broken up very simply. I'll give you the framework. There's four parts to this letter. There's an address and a greeting. There is a thanksgiving and prayer verses 4 through 7. There's the appeal to Onesimus, that's verses 8 through 21. And then there are closing requests and remarks. Now, literary scholars, when they study this passage, uh, point to the fact that the Apostle Paul obviously used a specific tactic that they used in the day. So a lot of the orators in the day, they would kind of stay in court in the center of the city or, or they would maybe book a room somewhere that the public used and they would preach their philosophy per se. And they used this tactic where they would want to warm the heart 
of the people listening to get them halfway there. They wanted to kind of affirm some things that they could all agree on and then take them the rest of the way with the argument they wanted to make. And so when they studied this letter, they believed that the Apostle Paul very much took that method that he probably used himself but had heard others use and put it to, to paper, to parchment, and wrote it in a way to invite Philemon into a better decision. The way that I like to do this is like, this is kind of like, you know, back in the day, if you ever, you know, and if you're a 15-year-old wet behind the ears, back, back in the day when you were trying to court somebody, you know, I know I did this, I'm guilty, but I would put R&B on just low enough in the background. Look, Tevin Campbell, can we talk? Just in the background. Just low enough so she can hear, but, but not too loud where she couldn't hear me. You know, or maybe, maybe you were somebody who, who wrote love notes and you wrote on there, for your eyes only. Ooh, oh, I feel special now. And you probably drew the eyeballs on there in the number four and you folded it origami style. Like you did all that. Let me drop in, and you had the ball, and you, the ball dropped down the page, and then you like, man, you just took people on this journey. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He originated the love note, I think. And we're going to see that. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to read the passage because it's so short, but before we do, I kind of want to set a little bit more framework. So when, you, when we open up this passage and we read it, and verses 1 through 3, it's really important to notice a couple things. The first thing you need to notice is that his introduction is not his standard introduction. His standard introduction is usually the Apostle Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In this letter, he says, uh, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So immediately, when this letter is being read, Paul is pulling on the sympathy strings of the hearer to say, hey, you're hearing this letter in your big old house, cushy. Yeah, you're doing the work of ministry. Good for you but I'm in prison. So he, he's, he's, he's walking in really in this place of humility because humility is the call that he's going to give throughout this whole letter. We also see that Timothy was a part in writing this letter. We know that Timothy was, was Paul's most beloved disciple. And so we know that he had a little help in writing this letter. We also know that this letter, though it was personally written to Philemon, was also written to other people and to the church. He names uh, who we believe to be Philemon's wife, who we believe to be Philemon's son, and then he says the church. And that is important because in that culture, the, the, the wife would be responsible for the oversight in the day-to-day of the slaves. And so she also had a responsibility as Onesimus was coming home. But we also see that he's writing this letter very personally, but very communally. Again, going back to those things we've been talking about, that like our faith is not our own. And so your faith decisions are not your own. And so that's the framework that we're going to start reading this letter in. So if you can, go ahead and stand to your feet, if you're able. And we're going to read a fairly short letter. And I just want you to just notice the artistic nature in which the Apostle Paul wrote. Here's what it says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith towards the Lord Jesus for all the saints. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, an elderly man, I'm old, and now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child, whom I fathered while in chains, Onesimus. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful to both you and me. Play on words, Onesimus means useful, but because of his wrongdoing, he had become useless. Now all of a sudden, because he has Jesus and his life is more meaningful, he is useful not only to Philemon, but also to Paul and to all believers. Really important piece there. I am sending him a part of myself back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. This is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. <laughs> yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. Epaphras, the dude who started the church in Colossae, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you. <laughs> and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Bless the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So I hope with all the framework and with some of my special reading, you can see this unique way that the Apostle Paul was painting this beautiful picture to pull on the strings. Now imagine having stood up in your house church and their dead center in the room or probably in the front of the room as the host was Philemon. Can you imagine the weight? Can you imagine the pressure that he felt to make the right decision? So as I say that, let's look at the framework. We already covered the address and the greeting. Now let's look at the Thanksgiving and prayer. Verses 4 through 7. The first thing that he does that is very important in any discipleship conversation that you ever try to have in your life 
uh, with another believer is what the Apostle Paul does here. He affirms his Christ identity. He lays it on strong, just how faithful and how loved he is by God and by other Christians. He talks about all the things in which he's done well. Man, you are the most hospitable person in the world. Man, you refresh everybody's heart. Like, when people know if Philemon coming over, they know they're getting extra stuff. Like, they love to invite you to all the parties. You're just so gracious. You're just so loving. It is already in you to do what I'm about to ask you to do. He builds rapport and highlights their communal bond. He starts talking about how they share in faith together, how they, how they have this relationship, how they are partners. He, he, he introduces things like love and this idea of, of refreshment. He's going to use those words again so you can even see just the poetical nature in the way in which he wrote this letter. And then he uses this word, uh, uh, koinonia. This word is important in the New Testament. It's used in different places, but the best way to describe it, it's, it's, it's encapsulated by all those one another passages that we read. Love one another, forgive one another, uh, uh, carry one another's burdens. It's, it's the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower. But it also speaks to our connection to Jesus, how we share in fellowship with Christ. He is the head and we are the body. So he's using this language to pull Philemon into the bigger picture. The next thing we see in the bulk of our letter is the appeal for Onesimus. We see this in verses 8 through 21. The very first thing he does is says, I'm not going to appeal to you out of my authority. I'm an apostle. I can make you do this. But instead, I'm going to appeal out of love. We know that love is the most beholden and the most uh, important virtue of the Christian faith. And the Apostle Paul models that for us. And he says, I'm going to appeal on the basis of love. And the way that he appeals out of love is, is pretty remarkable. And in verses 10 through 12, he makes an appeal based on Onesimus' life change. He says, listen, Onesimus is not the same Onesimus that you know. He has experienced the love of God in the way that you've experienced the love of God. He's experienced my love in the way that you've experienced my love. And, and, and now he is deserving of your love in the way that other people have experienced your love because he is now a beloved brother. He also makes an appeal based on the gospel, verses 13 through 14. He talks about how Onesimus has been useful to the advancement of the gospel. And he knows that Philemon loves the gospel so much so that he's hosting a church in his home. The gospel is important to Philemon. So I'm going to appeal to your love of Christ and say, listen, you may know him as the dude that ran off and cost you some money, but can I tell you, this is the dude that is reaping a harvest for the Lord Jesus. And don't you care about that? Ain't that awesome? Don't you love that report? So he's appealing to his love for God and love for the church and a love for the gospel. Then he moves to making an appeal based on theology. He appeals to God's love for Philemon and saying, hey, this is probably why he went away from you for a while. Because God saw fit for something better for y'all's relationship. You only could see the relationship as a master slave, but God actually wanted y'all to be brothers. And ain't that beautiful? God wanted you to have another sibling in the faith. God loves you. But also God had a bigger purpose out of his love for Onesimus. And because you love God, you don't want to get in the way of that, do you? What we know is that in the, in the Eastern church, uh, Onesimus has been kind of heralded as the, uh, the, the bishop of the church of Ephesus. 
So, so he went from being a, a runaway slave to, to the bishop of one of the most important churches in church history. God clearly had bigger plans for Onesimus than him just working a storefront for Philemon. And it was important for Philemon to understand that. Then he makes an appeal based on their own relationship. That cornonia word comes back again. He says, hey, man, if you consider me a partner, like if you take credit for knowing me, like if you go around telling people, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, was, I was actually saved by the Apostle Paul. Paul yeah, I, I heard him preach in person. Like I, I was at the I Have a Dream speech on the front row. Like I knew him. I gave him his hanky. Like, like if, you, if you can claim an association with me, then please share the burden with me. If you consider me to be a partner, then, then love the way I love. Care about the things that I care about. And you know what? I don't need you to, to write me no letters while I'm in prison. I don't even need you to come down here to visit me. Don't come bringing me no fish plate. I don't need none of that. What I need from you is to love Onesimus in the way that I love Onesimus. That's how you can refresh my heart. And don't you want to do that because you love me? And then we move into the conclusion. And in this conclusion, he does a couple things. He establishes a sense of accountability, but he also establishes a communal witness. The first thing he does is which is hilarious to me. In verse 22, he says, when I get out of jail, the first place I'm coming is to your house. I'm a, I ain't going to make you do it, but my looming uh, uh, showing up in your town, my looming return to, to visit you, should put some accountability in the way that you live out your faith. He also was implying in between the lines that my expectations for you is, because he said, make a, make a room for me too. The implicit was that when Onesimus shows up, you're going to make a guest room for him. So he said, make a room for me too. But then what, what else does he say? He says, hey, I want to name some people that are important. Because they know about this too. So even if I never get out of jail, they probably will. And then they're going to come to town too. So you know Epaphras? That dude that's from there, that planted a church, he in jail with me right now. He probably going to get out. He said, hey, he going to come home. So he, he, he going to check on it. Uh, you know, Luke, Demas, you heard about them before, right? They, yeah, they got more work to do. They probably going to pass through. They going to want to know, hey, man, where Onesimus at? Somebody go get Onesimus. So what he's doing is he's, he's giving, again, this bookend pressure of this communal responsibility to Philemon Day. Your decision, no matter how much you want to make it privately, has a public ramification, and you can't get away from it. The last thing he does is, and you have to see it in its original language because it's hard. It's very easy to miss in our English, but that word your in the last sentence, bless, uh, what, what does it say? It says, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That your is a plural. So he started with this wide net, zeroed in on uh, Philemon, and then went back out to the plural and brought the whole church back into the picture. And says, not only is this Philemon's responsibility, but now that you've heard it, it is your responsibility. 
while also modeling for them that when you have a dispute in the future, this is how you handle it. This is what you do. You give radical grace to one another. So the Apostle Paul was a master of words. He wrote a beautiful letter that I think challenges us in so many ways. Before we jump to all those challenges, what was his primary message to Philemon? Well, it's this. Based on the freedom and forgiveness you have received in your spiritual reality from Christ, do the same for Onesimus in his earthly reality. Based on what you freely receive from God, now go freely give to those closest to you. The reformer Martin Luther had a doctrine that was really helpful for me in this. He calls it the two kinds of righteousness. He wrote a long dissertation on it, but the simple is this. What you freely get from God, that is your righteousness. Your one defense, your righteousness, Christ. He imparts his righteousness unto you. That's the only thing that makes you good. You could never do anything to be righteous before God. So he says, listen, your good works that your faith calls you to is not to make God happy. God is happy about you through Christ Jesus. It is to be righteous to your neighbors. So the righteousness you receive from God is then to spill over into righteousness before your neighbors. And you know who your first neighbors are? The people in your house. And once you go from the people in your house, you go to the people in your faith community and then to the world. We have this addiction in the Christian church, especially in our Western society, to skip over the people closest to us to go make the world feel better about Jesus. That ain't what he told us to do. He said the way that they're going to feel better about me is how you feel better about each other. So all these commands we read in the Bible that we take out of context— They were written to teach us how to be better Christians with each other. It's more pretty to go and say, I want to go love out in the world, and we should. But it starts from how you love inside of your homes and inside of the church. And that is the thing that will draw the world because they don't know anything about that. And so that is the charge for us today. If Paul had a message to Philemon, then Philemon has a message to us, and it is this. The gospel is not just to be believed, but it is to be lived. It's easy to believe the gospel, but can you be crucified by the gospel? The gospel is a message that we walk out that that nails us to the cross every day out of obedience to Christ Jesus. It is a call to do the hard things even when it hurts. That's the case here for Philemon. And this Paul holds up the weight of gospel identity over every other identity. He holds up Philemon's gospel obligation over his earthly right. He holds up Onesimus' gospel purpose over what society had deemed was his purpose. He holds up gospel community over worldly acceptance and worldly systems. Ultimately, he holds up gospel unity over over the partial gospel that Philemon would be tempted to receive the moment his eyes saw Onesimus. 
Paul in this letter is saying, Philemon, out of your love for God and out of your love for me, be crucified out of love for your brother. So what's that theology for us then? Simple. We are to embrace gospel identity over every other identity. Gospel obligation over every earthly right. Gospel purpose over your life's purpose. Gospel community over worldly acceptance. Gospel unity over the gospel of me. A couple weeks ago, Tyler had us repeat this phrase, we fight for unity. Can y'all say that? We fight for unity. And I want to add to that and say that we fight for unity and the fight begins with the gospel as our life, as our lens, and it sounds funny, but as our leash. Unity happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that matters ultimately in our life. It is when the way that we love in our homes and the way that we love in our community and honestly, the way that we love ourselves when we look in the mirror, it, it, when, the, when it flows from the gospel, that's when we can rightly walk in unity. When the way that we see the life's biggest issues and the way that we see the hard things that we have to walk through, the way that we see our suffering and the way that we see our sin, if we can see it through the lens of the gospel. And when the flesh inside of us wants to pull us away, when the gospel as a leash just pulls us back into the safety of who God has called us to be. Constantly reminding us of our need for him. And why our best place to be is with him. And so, here's my charge as I wrap up today. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon. It's written to him, but it was also written for us. And so your charge and your, your gospel obligation is this. If you're somebody in this room and you have unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister in the faith and you are refusing to seek reconciliation with a brother and sister in the faith, you are in sin and you are in error. That is not of my authority, but that is from the word of God. And your call and your responsibility is to be a peacemaker and to be a reconciler. And so out of love for you, but most of all, out of the love of Christ Jesus and his gospel and the work that he has for us to do here in our city, I appeal to you today to go from this place determined to make peace and determined to reconcile. You can't determine how they will receive you, but you can determine how you step towards a situation. And your call today is simply obedience. Let's go out of here. Let's love the veal. Let's do all that awesome thing. But let's love God and let's love this church too. Heavenly Father God, we just thank you so much. Thank you for your word that is real and that is relevant. I thank you that your word is hard sometimes. But I thank you that your word is always coated with grace and so, God, may we rest in that grace today. God, give us the capacity to be the forgiveness that you were and to do the hard work of reconciliation whenever we can, God. 
God, thank you for the way in which you have reconciled us and you continue to every day. And may that be our peace and may that be our rest. I pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.